It's something for nothing. The Rush Fan Cast, take two. Jerry, how are you on this great day? Great, Steve. Did you have to mention that it's take two? <laughs> Did you have to mention that the microphone input was wrong for me? I have to mention. I have to point it out. You're gonna pierce the, you know, the idea that we're professionals. We're not professionals. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram. You can find us at the Rushcast. Email Jerry. Send him your notes about recording podcasts to the rushcast at gmail.com. I need them. Get on our email list. It's very important you get Jerry's email every Monday. It is. I send stock tips. Um, I don't know. Other things of importance. I don't know. And a reminder to actually listen to the podcast. Lex did the open and close baseline and you can subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast app. And Jerry, I've got a surprise for you today. I'm not even going to guess. It's a Twitter poll. Oh, okay. That's good. We talked about different stages not too long ago, probably a month ago at this point. Sure. But I asked the Twitterverse, we had talked about on the podcast, I asked you actually, which song you looked most forward to seeing Rush perform live. Okay. The Spirit of Radio, Tom Sawyer, or YYZ. And I made you pick. So I made the Twitter fans pick too. What do you think they said? Um, Spirit of Radio. You just got it. Oh. The Spirit of Radio, 42%, but YYZ came in a minuscule second, oh. 41%. So it was a dead heat, pretty much. Yeah. Tom Sawyer brought up the rear, 17%. Not surprisingly. What do you mean, not surprisingly? Because people, I don't know what it is about Tom Sawyer. They don't love Tom Sawyer as much as they love the other songs. They just don't. Yeah, I guess so. Because they've heard it over and over and over again. But as we've talked about before, we, we love it still. We do. Um, can you, what was my answer to that question? Your answer was YYZ. Of course it was. And mine was the spirit of radio. So between us, yeah, we both got it right. We both got it right. Although I do love Tom Sawyer. Yeah, so do I. But neither of us picked it, so there. Yeah, well, I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> we just criticized ourselves there, didn't we? <laughs> we just did. <laughs> These people who don't want to hear Tom Sawyer. We're one of them. Yeah, we're, yeah, we are. Well, I do want to hear Tom Sawyer. I just want to hear the spirit of radio more. That's all. Right. Maybe first. Right. So you got an email uh, for us? This is from Jason. Hey, Jason. He says, during the different stages episode, when you changed your mind about the album, it occurred to me why your show has been so embraced by fans. Ooh, this is going to be good. It is. You've proven that whether it's Martin Popoff, Ryan Reed, or your own album breakdowns, it's possible to explore Rush and their music and even disagree occasionally without arguing over it. In the past, this dynamic has been an issue for me with fellow Rush fans. I appreciate their enthusiasm, but just because I didn't see that third date on the Test for Echo tour doesn't invalidate my opinion. In our defense, I think we come at this honestly from years of defending the band against naysayers. So even when we encounter a fellow traveler, we are quick to put up our guard. So I'm pleased to say that your show has become a happy, neutral ground where every opinion is welcomed and explored. And I thank you for that. Wow, that's great. That's an amazing compliment. It is, right? So with that in mind, I would like to pose an opinion and would love your take on it. I'm going to shoot this down. You ready? <laughs> <laughs> You're going to take his I'm thesis kidding. and beat it up and dump it in a in the backyard in a shallow pitch. <laughs> Once CDs became the standard recording medium, Rush filled some of their extra minutes with inferior songs. Tai Shan, Dog Ears, 
double agent you bet your life and others would never have made the cut if there were only 20-something minutes per side like there were on old-school vinyl. Think about it. If those songs stayed in the vault but were later put on a compilation of unreleased material 30 years later, we would have been ecstatic but also knew exactly why they didn't make the cut in the first place. What do you guys think? Hmm. We'll talk about that. But then he says, by the way, for the next podcast, I'm going to take a drink every time Steve says fantastic and see what happens. <laughs> it should be fun. Well, first of all, that email was fantastic. It was fantastic, wasn't it? It really was. And basically, you have this guy's night in your hands. You can make or break his night. I hope he's got the bottle out because I'm going to really, <laughs> really knock him out tonight. But back to the CDs. Back to the CDs. You know, I don't know if I agree with him. Oh, I totally agree with him. You totally do? Absolutely. You think that Rush created extra songs because they had room on the CD? Yeah, didn't everybody? Isn't everyone guilty of that? There are so many albums, you know, like after, like some, like in the 90s, right? That are, you know, 79 minutes long or however much music CDs can hold. Where I think they would have been so much better if they had cut out two or three songs and made them 10 songs instead of 13. I don't think Rush would do that. I don't think they would put a song on an album that they didn't 100% believe in. I really don't believe they would do that. But you can see the, the number of songs increase as CDs became the medium, right? Mm-hmm. Power Windows has eight songs on it, right? Hold Your Fire has what? Nine songs on it? Okay, well, Snakes and Arrows has 13 songs on it. Which one would right. you delete? Well, I don't know which one I would delete. I'm just saying that they put 13 songs on it because they could fit 13 songs on it. Right, but Rush didn't create any songs that they didn't put on an album, at least according to them. Exa- yeah, right. He's, I don't think he's correct about these songs being written and not put on the album. I'm saying they wouldn't have written them to begin with and they wouldn't be in the vault somewhere, but they were only written because they had to fill up this space. I mean, everybody did that there. Like I said, there's so many albums. I'm trying trying to think of a, a really good example of that is Springsteen's the rising. Okay. Which is a fantastic, I don't know if you've ever listened to the rising Steve. Mm-mm. It's no. came out a year after nine 11 and it's just a fantastic um, response to a national travesty some of the songs are so moving but again there's like four songs that you could easily cut from that album and it still would be a decent length album well let me play devil's advocate here okay two songs that you don't like all right ty shan yep and rivendell Mm -hmm. okay ty shan was on hold your fire the cd era yep you could argue that they could have removed ty shan and the album would be better in your estimation right yes so explain rivendell then those are the songs they wrote for Fly By Night. My only point is they had 37 minutes for Fly By Night. Yes. And they still had to fill that 37 minutes. And one of those songs is a song that you don't care for. Right. But what I'm saying is if they only had 37 minutes for Hold Your Fire, and I think that's what Jason is saying, if they only had the same amount of time that they had for the vinyl era albums, 20 minutes per side, 40 total, would some of these songs have made it onto the album. And I would say maybe not. I would argue that we'd have more Rush albums. That's what I would argue. What do you mean more Rush albums? I think they would have 
saved a song that they, they really liked and used it, especially Neil's lyrics. We know he saved lyrics that he wrote for later albums. Ty Shan may have ended up on Snakes and Arrows if it didn't make the cut on Hold Your Fire. Maybe. We don't know. They put out albums every year in the 70s. They did it every two years in the 80s and every three or four years in the 90s and 2000s, right? Right. Well, somewhere there's an alternate universe where Ty Shan <laughs> doesn't exist for whatever reason. So I agree with him about the, the CD era, not just for Rush, but for a lot of bands that people, they just filled them up with songs because they could fill them up with songs. Well, I disagree with Jason, but I still think his email was fantastic. I mean, really fantastic. It was fantastic. Amazingly fantastic. Really. If you think right. about it, the, the most fantastic <laughs> of all fantastical emails. Jason's tipsy already. And we haven't even met our guest yet. <laughs> California-based writer known for his memorable essays about rock and roll in the music business. He's the former columnist for the pioneering music magazine Craw Daddy, the magazine of rock, and also the author of Rush FAQ, all that's left to know about rock's greatest power trio. Max Mobley, welcome to the Rush Fancast. Thank you so much, Steve and Jerry. So delighted to be here. We're excited to have you. We start by asking all our guests, Max, their Rush origin story. You have it in the introduction to your book, but we need to hear it out loud. It's a story I just love. So uh, I was probably around 12 years old at the time. My next door neighbor, Karen, this lovely teenager of around 16, a guy down the street had just moved in or was staying with his grandparents, actually, I think. And he discovered she lived there. And so he decided he's going to win her over. And he attempted this by bringing over Rush 2112, which is, I think had just come out. And so he you know, goes to her house, puts it on her turntable, thinks this is it. This is going to seal the deal. And uh, I don't know how far they got, but it wasn't very far into it where she said, stop. And she clearly didn't care for the music, which is probably not a surprise. I wasn't there, obviously, but she said something like, but my neighbor, he would really like it. And so, so she actually leaves him at her house, goes over to get me and says, hey, this guy's over here with this album. And I think you might like it. Come listen to it. Uh, you know, at that point, I'd been listening to Kiss and you know, maybe some ACDC. I was still pretty young and inexperienced. And once I came over and the guy showed me the record, like he forgot all about Karen and he was all about introducing me into Rush. And I remember he sat, he pulled a chair into the, like the best listening spot in the room where her dad's stereo was. He put on the album, played side one, made me listen to the whole thing and like not talk, not do anything. And then he played it again and, and demanded I only listen to the drums. And then he played it again and demanded I only listen to the bass. And I don't know how many times we played it in a row, but I was floored. I had never heard anything like it to this day. It's still an amazingly important album. And it really is a, what a great way to meet the band, like so many other millions of, of Rush fans. Yeah. And where'd you go from there after being force fed 2112 for an entire day? Yeah. Uh, well, I played the heck out of it. Uh, we honestly, I mean, it was a day. I remember at Karen's house and I wish I remembered the guy's name. I don't. Uh, he also taught me how to make little rockets out of matches and other bad things. No, I used to do that too. With a little foil? Yeah, a little aluminum foil, sure. Yeah. Just cut, cut the heads off the matches. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sure Karen's dad found some. We didn't, I'm sure we didn't get them all up. They were, we were shooting them everywhere while we were listening to 2112. But I also, he had me go over and I wanted to go over because I was such a big music nerd already at that age, at least as far as like liner notes and stuff. And uh, I just poured over, you know, all the information and the story. And first time I saw words for a song, 
that were not sung, that were just helped move, propel the story and give context and stuff. It was amazing. So as soon as I could get my mom to take me, I went to the record store, which was one town over. I grew up in a little, little farm town in California. Uh, there was a Tower Records uh, in Stockton, which is the closest big city. And I wanted to get 2112. I had my money. I was ready to go. And they were out of it. So they had all the world's a stage, which I couldn't afford. And then they had uh, the first album, which I don't know, for some reason, <laughs> I didn't buy until like years later. Uh, but they also had Fly By Night and they had Caress of Steel. And I just probably took me 20 minutes to decide which one of these <laughs> I was going to take home. Caress of Steel went out, probably because it, it folded out. And uh, I took it home and wore it out. Wow. That's a great album to have as one of your first records. It really is. And it, it's one of my favorites. And it had, you know, two long form songs. It has a whole album side song, obviously. And I just, in fact, I just played it because the anniversary was recently, right? And so I was driving around. I played the whole thing and just love it. That's a trial by fire, though, for a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old, right? It is. This is one of your first Rush albums. That's it, true. I didn't know that at the time. I was right. just so enthused. <laughs> the concept of a sidelong song and a concept of the spoken voice and the story, you know, and of course, the guitar sound and the drums. Yeah. So, Max, there are dozens of books in this FAQ series. How did you end up writing this book? Did the publisher contact you? Did you reach out to them? How, how did that happen? We knew each other. Uh, I, I worked in the music industry for many years as like a product manager and managing customer support and a technical writer and things like that. So uh, I'd go to NAM shows, which is this giant music gear trade show in Anaheim every year. It's like three football fields worth of guitars, bass, drums, synthesizers, keyboards, accordions, mic stands, little foam things and guitar picks. It's Comic-Con for musicians. Perfect. Yeah, it is yeah. Comic Con for musicians <laughs> and for for musicians for uh, and for people who make and sell the gear and right. you know need to make a mon- make make a living off of it. But it's a small. The music industry is fair, a fairly small family as it was at that time, and so we got to know each other. And I knew folks at Hal Leonard, and uh, and I we had talked about it. And he was a Rush fan, and so I approached. So so I had an, a moment there when I was out of work from working in the in the tech industry. I had actually just left the company who made Autotune, which is a whole other controversy. And I said, hey, now's the time. I'm ready to write a Rush book. And they said, great. If you do these two Autotune books first, we'll do it. <laughs> no. Uh, and they, but that was fine. I mean, it, I mean, it is a technology that has its place. It's just been overused and overdone. And there's the, a lot of the controversy is earned. But it was designed as a tool so that if you're a little pitchy, you can fix it you know, in the box, so to speak, instead of hire your singer back, try to recapture all the mic settings and stuff, which you know about, it's hard to recapture the exact same tone. That's what it was designed for. And then it just went crazy from there. Anyway, so I wrote those, I wrote two books about pitch correction. I paid my dues. They teed me up for the, uh, the rush book. I think they also wanted to make sure I could write, to be honest. Right. And I pitched a different book than what the title in the series sort of intimates, dictates. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I wrote the Rush book I knew I could write and that I had inside me. And we went back and forth on the title. And in the end, you know, the publisher picks the title. And so there it is. You know, it's funny. Jerry and I were just talking about the fact that there aren't many questions in the book. There aren't any frequently asked questions. We, we love the book. It's so well written. But the, the title doesn't really fit it, right? The title doesn't fit it. I, I would love to have a different title. It's really the story about the Rush world the impact you know as a fan uh, uh you know the instruments you know why this band matters 
And I, it was a bold move because I knew fairly early on that, that this was going to be the title. And I'm like, I'm not changing what I'm writing. I'm, this is the book you're getting. Right. And they took it. I think they were happy with it. But yeah, it's and there's a lot of facts mm-hmm. to my defense. And I was just looking at it like, before <laughs> we started here. There are a lot of facts. And I think almost all of them are accurate. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and I'll also say that, you know, I wanted to write a Rush book for for years before I wrote this one. And uh, my first the first Rush book I wrote was Chemistry by John Collins. And that book does not get a lot of love, but I love that book. And it's hard to find. I, I have, still have my copy. And then, of course, Martin Popoff's Contents Under Pressure. And, you know, with that when that book came out, Martin's book came out, I was you know, a little bit jealous. I'm like, dang it, I could write this book. I should write this book. I can write. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> And I sat down to write this book, Rush FAQ, and I'm like, oh, this is so hard. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, pull props to Martin because, he, you know, he, I mean, obviously he's a great writer and, he, and he's, you know, in the, an industry icon in a way for a reason. But it's so hard to get all that, all the details and all the technology, not the technology, all the details, all the facts, all the history, right? And he's like an encyclopedia. I just listened to your interview with him and he's like a walking rock and roll encyclopedia. Uh, I'm sure you learned pretty quickly, even though you're a huge Rush fan, how persnickety some Rush fans can be about the facts. So how does one go about compiling, you know, some kind of authoritative book on Rush and get, like you said, getting most of the facts right? (laughs) Um, You know, there's, I started like really obsessing over trying to make sure everything was 100% correct. I mean, I did that throughout, but early on I was like, okay, here's these 10 resources I found on Google that say it's this. And then here's these three others that say it's something different. What am I gonna do? And I panicked uh, early on. And then I just realized I just gotta go with my instincts. I gotta go with what I remember and what I know. And of course go with like, you know, the majority rule, so to speak, or, you know, who is claiming what, you know, some, some resources I think have more authority than others. That was a big help. I reached out to John Patuto from CygnusX1.net, Eric from Power Windows, mm-hmm. Ed Stanger from Rush as a Band, mm-hmm. and uh, along with some Rush, you know, family members. You know, Howard Ungerleader was great. Tony Geranios. How do you say that? Geranios? Jack Secret? That'd be my, yeah. Let's just go with Jack Secret. Jack Secret. I would go Jack <laughs> Secret, who was Getty's keyboard tech forever. I would go to those guys. I would go to, to, I already had a relationship, you know, with SRO Anthem. So anything that I felt like I wasn't sure about, I just needed the final source of truth. I would go to one of those. I didn't want to bother them too much and I'd get it. And, you know, that's how it happened. So in the first chapter, Max, you describe Rush's link in the chain reaction of rock and roll. Can you talk a little bit about that and how amazing it is that Rush has influenced so many current bands? Yeah, thank you, because I'm trying to remember that section. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'll say this. You know, they absorbed so much of the music they were listening to growing up. They chewed on it. They slept on it. They elevated it. And then when they put it out as their own music, you know, truly as an artistic endeavor, not trying to copy anyone. I know there's some, you know, some Zeppelin-y stuff in the first album. But when they put that out, you know, it it was sort of the next generation. They did more with the instruments than the people they listened to. You know, arguably maybe not Keith Moon and, and people like that. You know, off because you know um, their first drummer John obviously wasn't couldn't keep up with Keith Moon. But really, as Rush progressed, you know, they took everything they had learned and they did it harder, better, more intense, 
more with more intensity, more heart. Um, and they pushed it and they explored it. And I, and I think that it resonated a lot with musicians. Uh, and they are of all, have always been a musician's band and bands from all across, you know, the world of rock and roll from no doubt to Foo Fighters to Tool, you know, they're Rush fans. Rush is somewhere in their history. Yeah. When you mentioned, just mentioned uh, John Rutsey, I had seen both the, um, the early performance of John Rutsey when they did Best I Can. Mm -hmm. And I had seen the performance they had done with Neil the best I can, but I had never watched them back to back. And you mentioned in the book, you know, that, that it was only a, a number of months. I don't know how many months it was, six months between those two performances. But the difference is absolutely amazing. I mean, I think that John Rutsey is a very good drummer, but he's a very straight rock and roll drummer. And then you get best I can in Neil's hands and he's doing all those crazy bills and stuff like that. And you, and as you say in the book, you can tell the difference in Alex and Getty when the the way that they're playing. You know, how do you think that that introduction just elevated the band into the direction that they finally went into? Great question. Well, first let me say this, John. I agree with you. John Rutsey was an excellent drummer, and any band would be lucky to have him. And uh, and they would have had a nice career if he was able to stay healthy and and maintain the commitments on the road. And I get it. I had friends, you know, I, I, I played in bands for years. You see the guitars behind me. Mm -hmm. And I played with, with musicians that had health problems. And when you're young and you're in the rock and roll lifestyle, even as a cover band or just a, you know, nightclub or a you know rock club band, you know, you, you party and you just, you live the life and it's just hard to maintain your health. So I see why he didn't work out. Um, I think if he didn't have that health problem, who knows if they ever would have made a change. <clears throat> it's also, I think, very unfortunate for John that, you know, the man who replaced him was the world's greatest drummer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, how do you, you know, it's just, it's just unfair because he was so good. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, th I, th I thought about what you were saying, not in those words, you know, the difference between like how Neil picked up the gauntlet and how it affected Getty and Alex's playing. And what comes to mind to me is, you know, the first Rush album, which is a really good album, and, you know, Working Man's, you know, arguably the best song on that album, if you could even say that. I don't like saying those kinds of things. But from that, within 12 months, they went from, you know, Working Man and Best I Can. Well, not Best I Can was on the second album, right? Working Man and Finding My Way to By Torn the Snow Dog. Right. It just, it just, he, Neil just lifted all boats. And I think it gave, Getty especially a platform to play the way he's capable of playing because bass guitar players rely so heavily on the drummer to, to help create the environment, you know, the bass, because a bass player can play as many notes as he wants, but if he's not sticking to the drums, it's not working. And Getty got that as all good bass players do. And with Neil, my God, it just opened up doors. And then for Alex, and then those two things opened up what Alex could do. And it gave Alex more room to, really kind of create the melody and the top level rhythm, you know, those guitar riffs and stuff that uh, he didn't have to play as close to the bass and drums. He could really explore on top of it. And it's just a, just listen to those albums back to back. And it's just a remarkable departure. And best I can is also a great, it is a great example because he changes the beat in there. Right. Um, I think I'm beneath between and behind. Actually, it's beneath between and behind, where he goes into a different kind of shuffle beat. But if you listen to those songs on Fly By Night, you know there are accents and and fills and and little things like that that just John wasn't the guy to play those. Neil clearly was just his domain, and you know Getty and Alex were able to lock on completely to that stuff. It must have been glorious. I would love to have been in the studio or that first audition. 
Yeah, those oh, first, yeah. Or that first gig two weeks after he joined <laughs> the band, they're playing in front of like 11,000 people, right? Right, yeah. Crazy. A lot of people would have collapsed. And you mentioned that first audition, Max. I mean, how unlikely is it with Getty and Alex and their immigrant parents and their upbringing and Neil almost not even showing up for that? How unlikely is it that these three guys even got together in the first place? Boy, isn't that the truth? I mean, it's really like a ghost of a chance not to be either. <laughs> but it, I mean, all you think of all the things that could have gotten in the way from the Holocaust to, you know, Neil, you know, chickening out because a white Corvette showed up to, right. you know, from Russia's management to uh, get him to the audition. And, uh, you know, nature finds a way. And I think sometimes things that are important just find a way. You know, I, I believe in Providence. And I think this is an excellent example of Providence. Now, you focus a lot uh, in the book on live performance. Is there a reason why you focused on live performance for the book as opposed to sticking closer to the, you know, the studio albums? Yeah, I mean, one, for two reasons. One was maybe more calculated. One is, you know, the, the existing books and a lot of rock and roll books about bands, they follow, they go album to album to album. And I kind of wanted to break away from that. Wasn't sure if it was going to work, but I felt it just was an opportunity to try it. Uh, and then with Rush, it was even it it even seemed a better fit, or it seemed like the right fit because they're such a live band. I mean, that's how people. I mean, I got hooked on Twenty One Twelve, the studio album, but my first concert was also Rush. It was Farewell to Kings, and UFO opened with Michael Shanker, and wow. it was my it was like the third time I've ever seen a rock and roll band. <laughs> You know, and the first time it was like a professional band. It wasn't like a local cover band. Uh, and it just, to this day, it just knocked my socks off. It was just mind-blowing. And, and I didn't know how to behave at a concert. You know, I grew up very sheltered. <laughs> I had seen like the Woodstock movie and I'd seen Monterey Pop. So I thought, well, that's how you behave at a rock concert. So you took your shirt off, started dancing around? <laughs> no, but I danced. I did the hippie dance. <laughs> it was funny. Uh, I was too shy to take my shirt off, but I hippie danced until I wore myself out. Uh, thank God for all those around me. And I was, you know, it was a Stockton Civic Auditorium, a fairly small venue of like, you know, 3000 seats, maybe, uh, maybe 5,000 seats. And I was on Alex's side of the stage on purpose. And I was maybe 10 feet from the stage. And I just, and I realized at some point as I'm doing my crazy hippie dance, there's like nobody around me for like three feet. I mean, <laughs> Probably not again. And no one else, of course, was doing it. And I remember also at one point that Alex looked at me and kind of like stuck his tongue out and waved it like in a, like in a, not in a mean way, just in a like, hey, and, but also like, what a weird guy. <laughs> when I was a kid, uh, it was just incredible. It was mind blowing. And, and I just thought this is really as great as the studio albums are, and especially Touchstone albums like 2112 live is what this band is about. And you talk in the book about, Rush performing Xanadu live. Do you remember them playing Xanadu that night and what you were feeling when you saw that? I was floored. I mean, you know, Neil, you know, stands up and he's and he's playing the giant. Was that a Glockenspiel? I don't know the name of that instrument. The giant bells, mm -hmm. giant tubular bells. Yeah, the tubular bells. Let's go with that. Yeah, we'll keep added in the right answer. <laughs> we'll look it up later. Yeah, <laughs> it's in my probably in my book somewhere. <laughs> yeah. uh, but yeah, just seeing him do that and seeing him like work the kit beyond, you know, snare cymbals and, and drums or snare hi-hat and kick uh, was fascinating. They, I remember they had like the, you know, the fog machine kicked in and, you know, and then this was the prophetic robe era. So they were wearing their robes, uh, you know, Getty shirts open. And I knew 
I don't know if I knew this song or not. I think I did know the song, but it just had that such an ethereal opening. I'm like, oh, you could just feel the anticipation building. And then when the first big hit comes after Neil, after Alex does his, you know, his volume swell intro of that riff, I remember him pointing to something down in front of him, like some cable device. I don't know what it was. And to like to somebody off stage, like, hey, pay attention to this. And then they go and they have the big flash pots where the, the power chord comes in, the Alex chord, and Alex loses his guitar sound. Mm. Oh, man. It's like, oh, my God. And you could just see the look on his face. And somebody came out. I don't know who it was. And they, you know, configured it. Obviously, Alex saw it coming. Obviously, the person who should have fixed it didn't fix it until after it happened. And you know what? Without a hitch, it wasn't like, oh, it wasn't an embarrassing moment. It, it was actually a good lesson for me of that. The, the show must go on. Just keep going. You know, you work it out. And again, as a former working musician, that is such a big part of performance. It's never going to be 100% correct. Nothing, you know, there's just so much technology, especially in the current era. Not everything's going to work right ever. You know, hopefully most of it does or nothing big goes down. And I've heard Peter Gabriel, where they get off the loop on In Your Eyes of the, you know, the sequence part. I've heard, you know, other things to go wrong in, you know, live shows. I, I saw, when I saw Rush on Clockwork Angel, some of the samples weren't working on like some of the Cynthia stuff. You know, and it didn't bother me at all. But you could see Gaddy and Alex looking at this. You're like, uh oh, <laughs> right. And yet they power through, and the, and in some ways it kind of makes it a better experience because you know you see these guys dealing with adversity while playing a Rush song, right. And also you know filling that space or making you know figuring out how to to recover or do something a little extra to make up for anything that's not working. Yeah, and the crowd was always on their side too. Like a little cheer went up. So yeah. I think one time Steve and I saw them. I forget, Steve, was it on uh, Clockwork Angels or R40 where Neil's bass drum, the head broke? Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't remember what show it was, but I do remember that, yeah. I don't remember what show it was either. But, you know, everybody noticed it. Yeah. And then when they finally fixed it, everyone yeah, everyone just kind of, <laughs> yes, we're back. You're back that's on track. Right? That's, a, that's a special, that's an extra special night. Uh, right. And that reminds me, I, I don't know if you guys have said this on your, on your podcast, but what was your introduction to Rush? Well, our introduction to Rush live was on the Power Windows tour in 1986, March 31st, 1986. I asked Jerry to drive us to the show. Jerry had never listened to Rush before. I had listened to Rush a little bit, starting with moving pictures. But that night, we became Rush fans for real. We were yeah. sitting stage on Alex's side of the stage, right? Yep. Behind the stage, in the back. We yep. got to see Neil. It was amazing. It was amazing. I, like I said, I had never, I heard stuff on the radio, maybe. Certainly didn't really know any of it, but walked in not knowing anything and walked out needing to know everything. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know that feeling. It is something else. And, you know, every time I go to a Rush show, and I haven't been to all of them, like some people, it's amazing how many shows they've attended. I've gotten probably between 25 and 30 shows I think I've attended. And every time I go, I can't wait. I'm, an, I'm a guitar player. I'm a huge Alex Lifeson fan. He's been a major inspiration to me my whole life as a musician. Taught me how to play in a band with synthesizers. Taught me how to serve the song, which is so important. The man never wanks. Even through right. the 80s when guitar wanking was all of a sudden the, the, the cool thing or the popular thing. Alex stay true to the song. Uh, so I go to every concert, every Rush concert I've been to, and I can't wait to just watch Alex and take it all in. 
And damn if I don't end up watching Neil most of the night. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alex did the exact opposite in the 80s, right? Everyone else was, was you know, doing all those solos. And he did something completely different. He didn't, yeah. I mean, he, he was still soloing, you know, but he wasn't, you know, it's almost like those heavy metal bands are trying to throw down the gauntlet to all the other heavy metal bands. Who right. can play the fastest? Who can play the, this, that, the other thing? And Alex was like, whatever, man, I'm going to do whatever I want. Yeah, exactly. It, well, there was, it was a sort of, you know, wank off of speed and dexterity at the expense of songwriting. Right, melody. Melody and soul. You know, I mean, you know, one note by David Gilmore for two measures can say a lot more than 60 notes by some of these heavy metal players. And I mean, and some of them are important. I mean, I, you know, full props to Eddie Van Halen. Oh, yeah. uh, I do think he was an incredibly important musician. Uh, first time I heard Eruption, and I had only been playing guitar for like a year and a half and was starting my first band. I'm like, well, I'm never going to play again. <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> everything else kind of felt in reach. You know, I felt like, okay, with enough practice, I could probably learn some Jimmy Page and I could learn some Alex and, you know, ACDC and maybe even some Jeff Beck. But, but Eruption was just this whole nother thing. Right. Um, but getting back to, to what you were saying in the 80s about Alex, you're absolutely right. And, you know, he was so maligned for it back then. And I remember people being so critical of his sound because he got away from the big heavy tube amps, the big Marshall's fat sound, and went to the solid state. Galleon Kruger, I believe, was the amp he was using, the amps he was using back then. But it was the right choice. I don't know how conscious it was, but that brighter, more cutting tone allowed the guitar to come through those keyboard dominant mixes. You know, if he had stayed with the Marshall, it would have just been guitar sludge somewhere in those, in that wall of synthesizers. Right. And uh, it was just a beautiful choice. And some of his best parts, I think, some of his most melodic and creative parts, I think, are on Power Windows and Hold Your Fire, or as I like to call it, the Red Album. Never took off. I wanted it to be called the Red Album, uh, like the White Album, but it just never happened. But both of those albums have stunning guitar work. And, you know, I ended up playing in a heavy synth band in the 90s when everybody was going with Nirvana. We were going full goth. And, I, again, he just taught me how to, how to make it work. You mentioned in your book something that I've always thought, but I've never seen anybody write about, Signals and the Muddy Production. I've yeah. always thought that signals didn't sound great. I, we love the album. Jerry and I both do. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I love the album too. Great bunch of songs, right? Oh my God. Uh, and of course, coming off of moving pictures, we, none of us can wait for the next Rush album. Of course, probably been that way for a while. And I remember being like, did, like, do I have a bad copy? <laughs> like, is there a, <laughs> you know, is there a problem here that like I could just take it back and get another one and maybe it's better? But yeah, it was kind of just dense and chunky, not even chunky, just kind of dense. And I hate using the word sludgy, but I'll say it for now. Uh, you know, just a little sludgy with those fat synths, you know, in the lower mids. And, you know, this is a time when analog synthesizers were the thing, right? And analog synthesizers are so fat anyway. I mean, mm -hmm. if you're an analog synth guy, this was the era to be into it because, you know, the Oberheims and sequential circuits and emu systems where i worked uh they just had the fattest sounding synthesizers so i think terry brown might not have known what to do with it i mean it was a new thing you know all of a sudden you know it's like if you're a chef and someone brings you this new animal <laughs> to get <laughs> up, serve, 
You're like, oh, okay. I don't know. I'll, I'll saute it with mushrooms. I don't know. Maybe that works. Do I skin it? Do I debone it? And so I think. Does it have bones? I don't know. <laughs> does it have bones? <laughs> Bone? I don't even know what this is. Uh, and I think that was a little bit of the case for a lot of guys back then because it synthesizers just became this big hot thing and signals i think i think that's partly why and the you know the new the, the remastered version definitely sounds a lot better mm-hmm. and i think for these three albums particularly signals power windows and the red album i love hearing them live because the guitar is up in the mix a little more and like i said it's some great guitar so like all the signal songs i think we've heard them all live on some recording or another except maybe countdown right so that's a great go-to for me for those songs. Don't forget Grace Under Pressure too. I love Grace Under Pressure. That's one of my favorite albums. That's an album that I, that, you know, I have like maybe five albums or maybe three to five albums that I play the most from the Rush catalog. And Grace Under Pressure is absolutely one of those. I think it's a great mix uh, with Peter Henderson. I don't understand why they didn't go back to him at some point because he had an amazing resume. And I think it's a really good mix of guitar and keyboards working together. Great bunch of songs, heavy stuff, great lyrics. Yeah, sonically, I always thought that those two albums should be switched. Grace Under Pressure sounds more like moving pictures, and Signals sounds a little bit more like Power Windows. Wow, that's really interesting. I think, I yeah, as you say that, I never thought of it, but I think it makes complete sense. I think if you didn't know, you know, if you didn't have the list in front of you, I think you might right. want to just automatically think Grace Under Pressure was the album after Moving Pictures. So uh, do you have the answer to this burning question? You mentioned it in the book. Jerry and I have talked about it. How on earth did Rush lose the Grammy to the police <laughs> behind my camel? Come on. Behind my camel. Right? Which is like a redundant 12 measures that just, they just play over. And it's like, clearly it was like, well, guys, we have, we need like three more minutes because I think vinyl must have still been around. And, you know, we can't, we can't get out of this this early we got to have like 20 minutes of music per side right uh and so like well here's this thing we work with that we already recorded just stick that on there i mean it just seemed uninspired and i love the police amazing <laughs> of course. obviously neil loved the police so yeah what do you guys think well this is one of steve's favorite topics it's one of my favorite topics how did that song win and we just read that sting hated that song he took the song and literally buried it behind the studio <laughs> he hated it so much. and andy summers had to dig it up to put it on the album. Seriously. <laughs> and they won the Grammy. Was this at Lay Studio? Probably not. I know they recorded <laughs> I'm not sure. one album at Lay Studio. You know, I, I believe that because, you know, you look at some of the stuff the police has done, which is just fantastic. And I love like Synchronicity. It's just a killer album and Synchronicity 1 and 2. And yeah, I think, honestly, I think it was just the, an absolute byproduct of how they were loathed by the mainstream. And, you know, they, who knows if the, the people who vote on these things even listened to YYZ. Right. Right. Yeah. It's the, Steve always says, you know, the police won because they're the police. Yeah. The police won because they're the police. Right. 100%. That's clearly it. It's like, you know, basically a haircut won over one of the greatest <laughs> instrumental. <laughs> haircut won over the Chrysler building. How did that happen? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you also chronicle in the book all of Rush's appearances on TV and film over the years. How much did all this have to do with Rush being accepted, as you said, in the mainstream? I mean, maybe if YYZ was released in 2015, maybe they do win the Grammy. You know what? I think you're absolutely right. I think they would have won the Grammy unless, I don't know who, who was big in 2015, but you know, who, you know, if 
Adele was she around 2015? If Adele had an instrumental, she probably would have won, or or Taylor Swift. But uh, but otherwise, it, it would have been a rush. You know, I think that the TV stuff as it gained momentum, I think it had a lot to do with them breaking through. You know, the, there was like this perfect storm, in my opinion, of their appearance on Colbert, which is just fantastic. I don't know if you remember it. Oh yeah. And I looked for it the other day and I couldn't find it. I don't know if you guys have tried to find it. I haven't. A lot of people were upset about that, though. Really? They were upset that they it seemed as if Colbert were making fun of them because he didn't let them play the whole song and went like went to sleep on his desk, if I remember correctly. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a joke, right? It's a comedy show, and he's, he's got thirty minutes, you know, minus you know, thirty minutes. And then you got to take you know twenty three with commercials, you know, right. time for commercials. Uh, but I thought it was great. One of the funniest things on that, I I thought was. The big joke throughout the show was that I guess his producer was a big Rush fan. Yeah. And so as soon as he, <laughs> Colbert sits down, but he sits down on the taller stool to be yeah. above them <laughs> and then, and says, you know, can I get your autographs? And he has them sign his hand, all three of them. And then Neil said, I don't want to see that on eBay later tonight. <laughs> I absolutely remember that. And I thought, what a funny guy. Because uh, you don't expect that from Neil, right? You expect that from Atlas. Right. To me, that was almost like, you know, young people when when the Beatles wanted Ed Sullivan and they knew in advance. Like this right. was probably the biggest TV moment for me. And I'm like, I'm ready for it. And I, you know, sat down, made sure everything was, you know, working, make sure the VCR was recording on a new tape at the slowest speed. And, you know, and it opens with Colbert reading the teleprompter and it's Tobes right. of Hades lit by flickering torchlight, <laughs> which is how I learned what those words are. I have no idea. There's no album. There's no liner notes. There's no lyrics on Fly By Night. I had no idea what the words to that song are to by tour. Uh, you know, I think the joke was though they were just so you know they were you know, he was making fun of their big songs and he also had the joke which I loved that have you ever played a song so epic and so long that by the end of the song you were influenced yourselves from the beginning of the song <laughs> right <laughs> but you know i think they played as much of of tom sawyer if not all of it uh before cutting to commercial and then you know he goes to sleep on his desk because it's too right. long which is, which is funny i didn't yeah. take it personally and then the next episode rush is like playing the last note and neil's bashing <laughs> the symbols and and you know colbert's waking up like oh, <laughs> so i just thought it was well played very well played so did i so that came out, uh, and then and then I Love You Man came out around the same time. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if, you know, somewhere in there was Trailer Park Boys, the, the Closer to the Heart episode, which I just love. And you realize what a talented actor Alex is. And I think that really opened the doors to the mainstream, to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and the, you know, the increase in ticket prices, and the lack of accessibility for guys like me. <laughs> yeah, right. And understandably so, no complaints. But there was a time when, you know, they would re reply to my emails quickly, SRO Anthem, and I they'd answer my questions. They I had photo passes and I interviewed Alex twice actually for a couple different things, which was great over the phone. And uh and I remember going to it was it, I don't think it was R thirty, so it was probably what was after R thirty, Snakes and Arrows, right? Mm -hmm. Is that right? Um, and I had a photo pass and I was, and these photos are in the rush book. And so you have all these, so you basically, the photo pass works is first two songs. You're down there next to the stage, looking away. And after that, get the heck out. If you don't have a seat, leave. Uh, and so I had a seat, you know, they were grateful enough to, or they were kind enough to give me, a, me and my wife, a seat to the show. I got the photo pass and I went down there and I had my little family camera. 
And all these <laughs> other photographers with their like $3,000 lenses are looking at me like, who is this guy? How did he get back here? And I remember even like, like Neil kind of looking at me like, how's this guy here? And then, the, and I'm pointing to my, I had the pass on my jeans because that was where you did it back then. And I'm like pointing, look, I have a photo pass. I have a photo pass. And I clicked away and I was talking to a couple of the guys that were nice. Some of the guys were not very nice and, you know, to each their own. But, you know, we were talking about like what the life of a rock photographer is. And the guys I talked to, they didn't even have like a home for their photos. They'd hope they'd sell them and, and they probably would sell some, you know, mine all in a, a bunch of mine ended up in my rush book some of them ended up in crawdaddy uh, i think some of them ended up in premier guitar where i interviewed alex so like my i so even though i didn't have a great camera and i wasn't like the official photographer at least mine got published uh, <laughs> so another thing i was fascinated by max is the chapter on clubs of rush yes can you tell us is this get a corns thing real come on <laughs> You know how I learned about Getty Corns? I learned about Getty Corns from my prog rock drummer, Jason, his wife, Corinne. They were like big Rush fans. Like they're, they're one of the rare things where it's a husband and wife that love the band equally. And they've got all kinds of Rush stuff in their house. And I didn't know when they got married, but they played Rush at their wedding. I think they might have, lyrics might have snuck into their vows. That kind of thing might have been like, a, you know, the a, a couple logos from Rush albums on the cake. Not sure. And she said she was a Getty corn. And I'm like, I, don't know that. <laughs> I just Getty smiled and nodded because I have no idea what that is. Like, I don't even know if I'm hearing you right. And because <laughs> that's, I don't know what, I didn't realize it was like a unicorn riff. Um, <laughs> and then I, and then I researched like, oh my God, Getty corns is a thing. Wow. Because, you know, I like, like, I don't know about you guys. I was one of the first to cross the line into the women's restroom because I only had a 15 to 20 minute intermission and this line is 30 minutes long to get to the men's room. So in and out, I went. Yeah. I never felt comfortable doing that. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, 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 I did have a few beers. Let's be honest. The need to go and the courage to, <laughs> to use the women's restroom. You know, another thing you point out in the book is the Brazilian fans. This was in the same chapter, how they yeah. just make us U S and Canadian fans look like amateurs. Yeah. A Russian Rio, one of the things about Russian Rio that's a little problematic for me is the fast edit. It's just, I would love for them one day if they have the material to re-edit that live show because it's a stunning live show. Um, but even despite that, the crowd is a part of that show more than any other mm -hmm. concert film I've ever seen, not just a Rush concert film. It's amazing. I mean, they got their hours early you know, they're chanting the soccer chant for hours. And then they're, and then later on they're, they're singing to YYZ. Yeah. That's the most amazing thing. I played that for my kids. Like, listen to this. They, they had no frame of reference, so they really didn't know. But I was like, listen to this. These yeah. people are chanting along to the melody of, of YYZ. It was the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. Truly. And they were at the airport when, when Getty and Alex arrived, they were such fans. And, you know, I think also, you know, Brazil is a, you know, it's a, it's a country that's got some, some problems off and on. Well, it's a country that's has some problems economically. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's also a testament to the, you know, the lack of talent and entertainment they get down there. So I think that it was not just an incredible thing for us to watch, but I think it was like really important to, to those fans and to the country of Brazil that Rush went and did that. And, you know, too bad they weren't able to go back. Yeah. So is there going to be an update to this book? Because um, it came out before 
you know, the final tour and everything. So yeah. Is there, are there more questions to be answered? Do you think? <laughs> uh, oh, there's definitely more questions to be answered. So to speak. So to speak. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, yeah, there's probably, there were more questions to be answered when this book came out. Um, you know, there is, there is another rush book inside me and I actually just, you know, as we're starting to crawl out of this pandemic here and I've been playing a lot of rush, they do get me through hard times. Is that, and I think that's what's so important to so many of us, right? They are a great band to help get you through the, the rough patches, which I think is why we also become such big fans. So there is another rush story uh, or book in me. It's definitely not a companion piece to FAQ. Is it a companion piece to this book? Maybe. I mean, there's just so much more to write about. And I love writing about the gear, which is, you know, pretty extensive in this book. I feel good about all the gear I covered. And I am a gearhead. And the stuff they were using there in Clockwork Angels and Time Machine and stuff. And they went into the virtual environment. And, you know, Getty ended up having like, you know, an orange amp offstage cranked which probably wasn't great for the techs while going through also a, a virtual sans amp, which is basically a digital, an amp in a box with no speakers. Uh, and, and a third type of amp, I think it was the digital design one, maybe, I don't know, uh, or Avid, but he had this very complicated setup. With, and I think he ended up sending like something like five channels of bass to the board. I mean, that was a chapter right there. <laughs> uh, if I could wrap my head around right. it. Those guys were always so big on the <laughs> those guys were always so big on like pushing what could be done technologically. I remember when I interviewed Alex for Premier Guitar, and it took three attempts for him to explain to me, you know, how his rig was set up. And I'm still don't don't think I got it 100. percent And I'm a guitar player; I've been playing for a long time. Now, Max, what were your thoughts when you heard the terrible news that Neil had passed? I'm yeah. sure it hit you like a ton of bricks, like it did us. You know, I remember when you know, like. You know, like when Bowie died, that was a big deal. I was a big Bowie fan, and it was hard. And I was very sad for for several days, and and you get these shocks. But with Neil passed, and I'm going to tear up here, you know, indescribable because he'd had he'd gone through so much, and you know, with losing his his wife and his daughter, and he recovered from that, and then went back into the public eye to be Neil Peart, and this amazing drummer and writer, and uh, and I don't know how one does that. Like few people could have done that. Uh, but he did it with grace and he did it exceedingly well. And he was smiling again and he found, you know, love again with Carrie and he had a daughter and he had like, you know, got that second chance and was living his dream. And then, you know, and then it was done. He he was the one that wanted to be done more than the rest of them. Right. I mean, I get it. It's like Paul McCartney. Getty will probably die on stage if given the chance. Uh, and Alex probably too. And Neil was obviously done and ready to spend time with his, with his, with Olivia's daughter and, and with Carrie. And then he gets this diagnosis and it's just so damn unfair. And I remember I found out about it. I was working. I just checked in on Facebook like you do. And it was Kelly Drew who was in all the rush pages on 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 social media and she had posted i'm like what like what is i I had to read it like four or five times to make sense of these of this simple sentence the simple declaration that neil peart had passed and um i didn't know what to do and it like the world stopped making sense for a moment and the impact of what this band meant to me came crashing down. And so uh, I'm laughing because, uh, thank God for this fellow, but I called my Rush fan drummer, Cece, uh, who had read my book and then we met and joined a band. 
uh, and I called CC and because I had to tell somebody, I had to talk to somebody. And he's a, you know, as big a Rush fan as they get. He's got Rush license plates. And I called and CC answered the phone and just hearing his voice, I just broke down and started sobbing. And he asked what was wrong and I could barely get the words out that Neil had passed. And, uh, and we just cried on the phone. And, you know, he, we still talk about it. I still tear up all the time about it. It is just, it's indescribable, really. I think be, not just because of the kind of person he is and what he's been through and how he recovered, what a great drummer he is, but also his lyrics, his humanity, which came out in his lyrics. We know this was an exceptional human being and just can't think of anything more unfair than than, than this. You know, we've asked uh, a number of people to try and figure out exactly why Rush means so much to so many people. Do you have any insight into that? Because I mean, because it's true, there are no other bands that I listen to where I feel the same way. As, as I, I mean, it's about. just such a lush world to hide in, you know. From you know, growing up is hard. We all are, we you know we all get scarred and beat up, whether you're a popular kid or an unpopular kid. And I think most of the unpopular kids probably gravitated towards Rush the most or found the most solace in their music. But you know those you know, all those arrows and barbs of, of adolescence, it's just so hard. And Rush wrote about that so beautifully in like Signals and other albums. But the landscape of the music, you know, from 2112 or, you know, Fountain of Lamb Neth or even like, you know, Limelight or Vital Signs or, you know, pick the album. There's a, there's a, there's a bunch of, every album has a bunch of songs that create this amazing, lush landscape like the sound version of lord of the rings or something the audio version of that and then on top of it you've got these lyrics that that guide you through life and and help you make smart decisions and tell you that it's okay uh and then on top of that you have these three guys clearly not you know the robert plant you know rock gods true to their roots true to their beliefs you know highly ethical performing this and doing this and doing it for the fans and that work ethic and their moral center. You know, it's just these three layers. It's just, there's nothing in my mind more lush and, and beautiful and powerful and safe to hide in than Rush's music when you need to hide or when you need to lick your wounds or when you need to laugh or when you need to lift a beer up and say, hell yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they have it all, right? Uh, and you know when you said that, you know, when you when you first asked asked that question, uh, you know Jerry, the the lyric that always pops in my head is, you know, why does it happen? Because it happens. Roll the bones, right? And um, that song especially gets me. I know that's a controversial song. Uh, Bravado off that album, which I think it doesn't get as much love as as I think it should, in my opinion, is another one of those. You know, if we burn our wings, we will pay the price. We will not count the cost. Um, both of those, I think, just speak volumes to, you know, to these heavy moments. So, Max, fast forward 50 years for us. How do rock and roll fans remember Rush in the future? Assuming humans are still alive. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, you know, that's a great question. I, I thought about this last night when I was going to bed. I thought, you know, if hundreds of years from now, someone discovers the writings of Neil Peart, just the Rush lyrics of Neil Peart, 
they could see it as a as almost like a religion, almost like a type of Bible. And if you raise your kid to these stories, you're probably going to end up with a really good kid. Uh, you know, and I think 50 years from now, I think they will be remembered for their lyrics, which I think don't get enough love. Um, I think they'll be remembered for their impact to, honestly, I think more to musicians and bands that went on to do something great, like the Foo Fighters and, and all these other bands that were influenced them. You know, they are they are going to be considered a fat trunk or branch of the rock and roll tree amidst, you know, um, past which all these other things grew and bloomed and, and took shape. But if you, you know, go up, you know, if you, if you travel down that, eventually you get to rush being, you know, the core and the center that's responsible for it. And I think you're going to also, hopefully you will remember that these were three amazing human beings beyond rock and roll, beyond art. They're just three grounded fellows. I don't know how you do that when you have all that success and you get all those people cheering you, you know, kudos to them. Really is amazing. So before we wrap things up, Max, I understand you've written your first novel. Congratulations on that. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Thank you very much. Uh, I interestingly wrote the first draft of the novel before I did Rush FAQ, but Rush FAQ, I was under contract. Boy, does that motivate you to finish the book? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing like a deadline. Right. It's another book where I had no say in the title. The the working title or the title I wanted was called For Feck's Sake. That's F-E-C-K apostrophe S because the main character is, is Howard Feck. And it takes place in those early days of the Internet when like chat rooms and, and cyber romance and cyber dating was this thing, this new thing that we were trying to navigate. And basically a very lonely, nerdy guy um, who just wants to be loved, who's had a hard life, uh, goes on the internet to meet someone. He happens to meet a woman who doesn't describe herself accurately. Neither of them do. They both describe themselves as, as wonderfully attractive, desirable people when they both are incredibly damaged people. And so he meets this woman. She gets her hooks into him. He, he thinks she's one thing. She's actually another uh, very dark psychopath, essentially. And he goes to surprise her with a meeting and she kidnaps him. And he's uh, so, you know, he's so lonely and desperate for love that he's like, I got nothing better going on. So he, so he, he kind of goes into this like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this work, and it evolves into a, a sort of marriage that is dysfunctional and sad at times, and violent at times, and beautiful at times, and uh, you know, and due to mental illness, uh, all hell breaks loose. Sadly. So if Rush fans want to get that book or Rush FAQ, MaxMobley.com is that correct? MaxMobley.com, uh, you know, where books are sold. I should say the word, the, the actual published title for the novel is Howard and Debbie. Those are the two main characters by Rare Bird Books. And yeah, I should make sure my website's working. Uh, you can always email me through there. And, uh, <laughs> but yeah, you can order it on Amazon. You can go to your bookshop and say, hey, can you get this in for me if they don't already have it? So there you go. Max, it was a pleasure having you today on the Rush Fancast. Thanks so much. We really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. You guys are the best. I'm so grateful for what you do. You are, and you know, especially in these times when we're not expecting new music, your podcast is a such a gift to the Rush family. So thank you both for everything you put into it. It's not easy. You make it look and sound easy. I know it's not. Thank you, Max. Thanks for the kind words. Have a great day. All right. Take care. So, Jar, how fantastic. I say this after every time we have a guest. How fantastic was that? It was fantastic. You're trying to get 
You're trying to get uh, Jason yes. drunk, right? Still? Yes, I'm trying to keep getting Jason drunk. I'm going to keep saying fantastic <laughs> over and over and over. He's passed out on the floor by now, let's be honest. <laughs> He's definitely, he can't even, he can't even keep up. Um, yeah, it was great talking to him. That was, it's a fantastic um, <laughs> uh, perspective on, well, he's not drinking when I'm saying it, Steve. Oh, only when I say it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He had, he had such a great perspective on so many different things that we've talked about numerous times with different people. So it was great. And I just think it's great that a guy who's a huge, huge, huge Rush fan had the opportunity to write a book like that. Right. Is just great. Really. As, and especially uh, writing for Crawdaddy, you wouldn't think that, you know, Crawdaddy would have a lot of pro rush content, but you know, they always seem to me like more of a, like a, just like a, a metal or heavy rock magazine. Right. But, but heavy rock fans love rush earlier rush most likely, but, but they still love rush. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram, you can find us at The Rush Cast. Email Jerry. Let him know what you thought of our conversation with Max Mobley at TheRushCast at gmail.com. Get on our email list. It's a great place to be. Lex did the open and close. And Jer, you did the quote, or you're doing the quote. I will do the quote. Please. Well, since Max's, I guess, first album was Caress of Steel, really, the one he bought, right? Yes, this is going to be good. Yeah. I am born, I am me, I am new, I am free. Look at me, I am young. Sight unseen, life unsung. I'm looking at you. You don't look young to me. (laughs) Or unsung. (laughs) I'm totally sung out. Take it easy. See ya.